Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Uh, I had this one uh, short, bald professor that kind of reminded me of Danny DeVito. And every time I remember him now, I think of Danny DeVito. Like, it's just, now I, like, see the words that I know my professor spoke, but it is coming out of Danny DeVito's head because I'm associating those two memories. Every time you, like, recall a memory, you're actually rewriting that in your head. It's also the same reason why when your parents told you something that you did when you were three, you can sort of, like, even co-opt that memory as your own. I say all that to say what is actually happening, I think, during childbirth and and the reason why uh, women can look on great sorrow and anguish and look back on it with joy is because they are now rewriting that memory combined with the life of this beautiful, wonderful child that is right in front of them. All the memories that they have made since of this little tiny human being that they have created and watch them sort of grow up and, and, you know, if it's a year later and you're thinking of all the places and things that the baby has done over the past year, if it's 10 years later or even 20 years later, all of a sudden you think about this one event that may have been a 9 or a 10 on the, pay sc- on the pain scale in the moment and now you are judging it against and even corrupting your own memory against all the beautiful things that have happened since. This tells us some really neat things, I think, uh, that Jesus wants us to know about living this sort of in-between life. The pain and the sorrow that you're experiencing now, right, maybe even in this very moment, maybe just uh, generally in life, because there is sorrow, there is suffering, there is pain and anguish in life, all of that, Once the promises of Jesus are fulfilled, that memory will begin to corrupt. That sorrow that you experienced that felt like the worst thing that you have ever experienced in the entire world will start to fade away, will start to uh, crumble as it is compared to living in heaven with Jesus. I mean, think about that. Like, Think about like the worst thing you've ever gone through or the most challenging thing you've ever gone through. Maybe you're even going through it right now. Do you know that one day that will be like nothing? Like that will be something that you like barely remember or you're sort of like, oh yeah, that did hurt a lot, right? That ought to be some comfort. The other thing, and this is kind of like a backwards comfort, I think, um, The other thing that we can take from this is that we ought to be able to prepare ourselves for sorrow and hardship. So much of our lives right now is centered on avoiding pain, of getting away from things that are difficult, of choosing, and you're looking at two paths, and you're saying, I could do this one, or I could do this one. This one's going to cause me the least amount of pain, so I'm going to do this one. But Jesus is instead telling his disciples, you are going to be experiencing a lot of pain. It's going to hurt. And yet, I've never met a, a pregnant lady who's just like, man, I don't want to do this anymore because it's going to hurt really bad. Now, you may like think that in your darker moments and you know, may try and sort of like avoid it or may even be avoiding pregnancy altogether for that reason. I don't really know. But I think, <clears throat> I'm speaking on pregnancy, right? I know like, you know, thin ice right here. I'm going to say something confidently about pregnant ladies and the way that they think. I think what is happening is you're able to weigh the benefit against the cost in your mind. And you're able to say, yes, this is an extremely painful situation. Yes, this is an extremely difficult thing, but I'm going to walk into it because what is going to happen in the future is going to be so beautiful and wonderful 
that I'm going to purposefully walk into a painful situation. See, even a very optimistic person, if he's realistic or she is realistic at all, needs to plan on experiencing pain and sorrow in this life. You need to plan on there being anguish. The life of Jesus does not help you escape all of this anguish. The life of Jesus does not take you away from pain. And in fact, Jesus promises us over and over again that it's going to lead you into more. The lesson we should take is that we shouldn't try to deny it. That won't help. We shouldn't try and pretend that it is not there. We also should not assume that moving forward there will be no sorrow, pain, and anguish. But we should assume also that the joy of Jesus that this pain brings about, the joy of Jesus that this sorrow brings, the joy of Jesus that this anguish brings is going to be so much greater to where this pain will pale in comparison to it. Secondly, people of the in-between think of themselves as being needy people who have it all. Needy people who have it all. Jesus says in verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in my Father's name, he will give to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I really like the back and forth of these uh, particular verses. Jesus sort of bounces back and forth from like the now uh, to the future, and he's saying that in the future, you actually won't have anything left to ask. Can you think of that? Can you like imagine a world with no needs, like where you're like, everything I have is actually already taken care of? Nothing in your head that you're thinking like, oh, I need to buy this, or oh, I need to go get food later, or oh, I need to save up so that one day we can do this. Like none of that is happening. One day you will have everything that you need. But Jesus promises, even in the in-between time, ask for my Father and he's going to give it to you. One day you won't even have to ask because you'll have what you need, but for now, ask and get my Father, we'll give it to you. And he looks at his disciples and he says, up until now you haven't even asked, but you probably should. Ask and you will receive. Now what does this mean? Does this mean that God is some sort of like cosmic gumball machine that if you ask for a Ferrari uh, and you say in Jesus' name, then he is obliged contractually to give it? I don't think so. I've tried and it really hasn't worked out for me. Maybe I need to be praying harder or something. I'm not really sure what the game is there. Uh, No, I don't think that's what it means. In fact, if you think about what it means to like ask something in my name, which is the all-important caveat to this, You think about, like, uh, back then, names had meaning. It was very difficult back then uh, to be able to communicate across great distances, right? So uh, think about now. We send a text message or a phone call or an email or something like that. Obviously, they didn't have that. They did not even have, like, a reliable mail system. So someone would show up. They'd ride up on a horse or camel or something like that. I don't really know. And they'd hop off, and they'd say, Hey, uh, King John over here told me that you should give me 500 camels. And in that moment, you're like, okay, well, how in the world am I supposed to know that? Like, you're either going to be handing over 500 camels to some really clever crook or supporting King John and avoiding death, pain, and turmoil for your family, right? I say I like to say, like, asking something in someone's name was a pretty serious thing back then. And it actually carried with it some consequences, too. Like, if you were ever walking up to someone and being like, the king will back me up on this, the king will actually come behind me and say, like, what I said is true, that's like inviting a potential severe consequence on you. Because if the king finds out that you are using his name for your own purposes, you are using his name uh, to gain something for yourself, then the king would put a stop to that really quickly. 
then you would probably like uh, die by the king's own hand, right? If you're just going around the country saying the king is telling you to do this for me. The same is true for what we ask in Jesus' name. There's nothing that we can ask in Jesus' name with a clear conscience and, and ask honestly that is solely for our own benefit. That's how we sort of like check ourselves against this being some sort of like cosmic gumball machine because Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give to you, which means when we ask for things, they ought to be things that Jesus would want, right? Like things that would uh, further his kingdom or further his mission here on the earth, right? The king never sends anybody and sends them with, like, this message of, like, hey, uh, go over to this Ferrari place. I'm sticking with the Ferrari dealership. Maybe we should stick with Camel so it's more culturally appropriate. Go over to this Camel dealership and tell them that in the king's name, they should give you a personal camel so that you can, you know, be the envy of everybody else on the street. Very similar to a Ferrari. It doesn't really work that way. Instead, uh, the king would say, hey, I need 500 camels so that we can conquer this other king. I need 500 camels so that uh, my army can be built up greater. I need 500 camels so that I can accomplish whatever my kingly mission is. And so I am sending you as an emissary for me to go and get those 500 camels. That is the exact same thing that happens when we ask something in Jesus' name. We go to the Father, who is the owner, who is the uh, provider of every single thing that we have on the planet. We go to him, and we ask, in Jesus' name, can you do this? And if you've read even just a small amount of like the book of Acts especially, the apostles would show up somewhere, and God would do something amazing through them. He would heal people. He would do all kinds of miracles and signs and wonders. And all of it was not just for the, for the disciples, not just so they would look cool, not just so they could impress people, but it was to move the mission forward. It was to accomplish what God wants to accomplish through God's people. That's how we ask. That's how we enjoy That's how we like uh, sort of... Uh, inquire of God. That's how we uh, beg of him to act in our life. As we say, God, what is it that you want me to do here on earth? And then Jesus is saying that whatever you need to be able to accomplish the mission that God has sent you on, he will give when you ask in Jesus's name. When you ask in the name of Jesus and for the mission of Jesus, the father will give you whatever you need to accomplish. This gives us a pretty simple and easy like litmus test, I think, for when we're asking things from God. And God wants to give us good things. He wants to take good care of us, but I think he wants to take good care of us in the sense that like uh, it's going to be better for the mission, right? Like how many times uh, in Paul's life would he ask God, hey, God, I need to get out of jail so that I can go and tell other people about Jesus and then immediately end up back in jail or flogged or whipped or stoned or whatever the case may be. See, even when things benefit us, they are not meant to just be for us. They are not meant to just make our life comfortable and cozy. They are meant to further us on the mission of God. And so sometimes when you're crying out to God for something that you really want, when you're asking in Jesus' name, maybe the answer is simply this is not going to move God's mission forward. This is not going to accomplish his will on earth, and that is why you don't need it. 
Maybe even when it sounds like something good, something that you would think God would want, maybe you're getting a no for that thing because it is actually not the calling that God has placed on your life. Maybe you're saying in God's name, I want to do this, but God is saying, actually, I want you to do this. Jesus has a plan throughout all of human history that is unfolding, and it's working towards one singular point where he sets everything to rights again. The things that the Father wants to give us are things that align with that plan. And if we are a little bit confused here on earth, that might actually not be the worst thing. Uh, The third point is that uh, the people of the in-between are confused but comforted. Confused but comforted. Verse 25 says this, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that you will ask the Father, or I will ask the Father on your behalf, but for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." Now, this feels a little bit like Yogi Berra kind of speech, I think. You know, Jesus is like, I'm not speaking in figures of speech, so I'm going to speak very plainly. Here's a bunch of stuff about the Father and what you ask and loving me and the Father, and I am the Father, and the Father loves you because I love you, and you love me, and that's great for the Father. Right? Like, it's a little bit confusing. Somehow, uh, this answer is a little bit comforting to the disciples. They respond with this in 29. His disciple says, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. I'm not sure what they were listening to. Must have just clicked in that moment, right? Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Let me read that verse again, verse 30. Now we know that you know all things. Okay, now pause right there. The disciples do not know all things, right? Okay, so how are you able to like make a determination as to whether or not someone else knows all things unless you actually know all things? Clearly there's something here deeper than knowledge. And they continue on by saying... And do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They're saying that, like, the in between life following Jesus in this, like, in between period between when his promises are going to be fulfilled, it requires this this leap of faith to say, Now we know that you actually know all things, and we do not. And because of that, we don't have to question you, right? Like, especially if you're a parent of a toddler, you're constantly spending your life thinking, like, I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm going to accomplish here. I know what I'm trying to achieve in your life. I am going to make sure you are fed. I am going to make sure you have a roof over your head. I'm going to make sure that you're taken care of. And yet still, it is constantly being questioned, right? Like, what are we going to do next? When are we going to do that? How are you going to do this? I really want this. What are you going to do with this, right? Like, all of these questions all the time. And this is somehow how we react, or sometimes how we react to God. The in-between life is one of not knowing everything, but in knowing the one who does. The in-between life is one of embracing, not knowing. Embracing the fact that we will never know everything in the universe. We will never know the plan completely that God has for our life. And we will never even fully understand God. That might be discomforting to some of you. For me, it is actually uh, very freeing. I think I found in my life uh, that when I can figure something out, I tend to get bored of it, right? Right? 
when you have something that you can just wrap your mind around completely, then all of a sudden you like lose interest. Like how many times are you actually going to work on the same puzzle? Probably not multiple times, right? Maybe not ever because puzzles are dumb. But if you're into puzzles, like you're not going to put it together like six times. Nobody's like, ah, that's my favorite puzzle. I have put it together ten times, right? Like it doesn't work like that. Even like books, like there's a limit. Even the greatest book of all time, whatever it may be in your mind, like there is a limit to how many times you can read it. Because you know what's coming. You know what is about to happen. You know uh, what is coming next. This is one of the greatest things about God. He is a mystery that I cannot solve. He is a puzzle that I cannot put together. He's something or someone that I will chase my entire life seeking to know him better and better and better, seeking to understand him and the world around me and his plan for my life and where I fit into his plan for the universe. And I know at the onset that I am not ever going to figure it out. And that's comforting because my simple and feeble human mind is wired to chase, wired to seek out, wired to solve, wired to hunt down the mysterious things in the world. And God is a hunt, a puzzle, a chase that will never, ever, ever be completed and will never, ever, ever cease to provide that that mystery, that intrigue, that adventure, that chase in my life. Finally, people of the in-between are people who are winners who are losing. Winners who are losing. Verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That last line is really everything, isn't it? Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Write that on your heart. It's something that you need to know that you need to believe, that you need to be able to count on and trust in when things get hard. In fact, if you get some time this week, you really ought to go back and read verses 13 through 16, or chapters 13 through 16 to like look at all of these promises, all of these things that Jesus has said. Because he says here, this is sort of like not just the capstone to our passage today, but sort of the capstone to everything that he's been saying the past three chapters. And he says, I have said these things so that you will believe. I have told you all of this, that in me you may have peace. These things are all for you so that you might find peace in Jesus Christ. And then he finishes by saying, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Jesus promises through these passages that uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, odds are you're going to be hated, you're going to be reviled, you're going to be outcast, you're going to be different from everyone else, and that is going to cause you discomfort. He even says, hey, uh, there'll come a day when people will think that they're worshiping God by killing you. And we see that even up until this day, uh, up like around the world right now, Christians who are just like you are meeting in secret and hidden places for fear of death because they are following Jesus. And Jesus even tells his disciples that. He's letting them know, like, things are going to be hard. And then he says, but take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. See, at the end of the day, Jesus wins. Like, that's the promise that he's making to us, to you, that he is actually going to be the final victor throughout this entire story. Jesus is the one who wins. And the tricky thing is the challenge, maybe even the, uh, the sort of bizarro reality to live into, is the one where sometimes it feels like we're losing while Jesus is winning. Like sometimes we have to like find a way for our brain to be able to hold in the idea that Jesus is actually one, that he has actually overcome the world, that this is not something that is going to uh, be future, but something that has already happened, but is just waiting for the full ramifications of, and yet we look at our lives and feel like we are losing. We have to lose just to be a follower of Jesus. And even in here in America where it is like uh, acceptable and uh, in some places and circles even like culturally beneficial to be a Christian, it still feels like losing sometimes. It still feels like we're missing out. Feels like uh, we lose even uh, some time from our week. We lose the ability to to chase after uh, whatever interesting and compelling thing is out there right now. We lose the ability to uh, join people that we know on doing things that we know are wrong. We lose the ability uh, to be able to just be so free with our time that we have no structures and restrictions on that. Uh, we have we lose the ability to just sort of like you know follow our heart and do whatever it is that we want. We are willfully submitting ourselves to someone who is not us, and that feels like a loss. It feels like we've given something up. Sometimes it can feel like losing, not even just because you're a Christian, but just trying to live this life. Like trying to follow after Jesus and do what you feel like he has led you to do, uh, what his plan for your life is, and you're looking around and not seeing the results that you're expecting. You're looking around, uh, maybe still experiencing very difficult and challenging things in your own heart and your own soul, even though you're a follower of Jesus. It feels like you're losing. I think I want to do something a little bit weird here, if that's all right. Uh, I'm going to preach to myself for just a moment. You guys don't have to leave or anything, uh, but uh, just know this is much more for me uh, than it is to you, but I think since I don't get to sit under a preacher, somebody needs to tell me, and I guess it's going to have to be me. It may feel like losing, but Jesus has overcome the world. I say, God, I am not good enough, strong enough, smart enough even righteous enough to start this church, to do the job that I have. 
uh, to be a pastor, to even like be a good missionary to the people around me, to be able to share your good news, God. I am not good enough. I cannot do it. I, I, I feel completely inadequate. I feel like I uh, should see more results in my life. I should see more action of the Holy Spirit. I should see more fruit. I should take more courage. I should be more bold. I should be out there sharing the gospel so much more than I actually am. I should be living a life that benefits my neighbors around me, that brings the kingdom of God in their lives. And I am not, and it feels like I am losing. It feels like I am being beaten up by it, destroyed by it. But the truth is that Jesus has overcome all of that. Jesus has overcome the world. Jesus has overcome your anxiety. Jesus has overcome your depression. Jesus has overcome your fear. Whatever that is. Jesus has overcome your plan for your life. Jesus has overcome the things that you have failed at, no matter how bad they are. Jesus has overcome your sin. Jesus has overcome your loneliness. Jesus has overcome your brokenness. Jesus says, take heart. Take heart. I have overcome it. It is already beaten. I want to leave you with this uh, one central idea of what it means to be a person of the in-between. And I, I hope this is as helpful for you as it is for me. Uh, I, uh, I've seen a lot of sunsets in my life. Not too many sunrises, though, because they're dumb and they happen at an inconvenient time to my life. Uh, what's great is here in Denver, the sunset happens like right after lunchtime usually. And then uh, the sunrise happens crazy, crazy early. I only ever see it one day a week. This is, might be shameful to admit to you, especially if you're an early riser and are going to judge me for being not that way. One day a week, though, uh, I sit in the Starbucks at Colfax and Raleigh because other coffee shops are not open yet. It's actually on Sunday mornings. Uh, sit there at like 6 o'clock, and I actually get to watch basically the entire sunrise, and it's amazing. Uh, I'm looking over uh, the sketchy Colfax signs and, you know, the mix of like million-dollar mansions and out, outright blight, you know, that happens on Colfax, and seeing all the interesting Colfax people walking up and down and then thinking to myself, you know what, when I walk up and down Colfax, there's probably someone sitting somewhere looking at me being like, ah, Colfax is weird, isn't it? Look at that guy, right? So that's what I'm doing every Sunday morning before I come here, uh, putting final touches on the sermon. So what was really cool is, if you saw the sunset yesterday, it was amazing. Like, I don't know what happened, and this happens, you know, once a month here in Colorado where it's just, like, phenomenal. It's always great. Sometimes it's just sublime, and that was yesterday. I actually spotted it, like, you know, mid-afternoon, and the sky's starting to turn sort of, like, uh, chaotic sea kind of like wavy orange almost, like little like glimmers of uh, the sun whenever the waves are out. And then it starts turning like a little bit sort of like uh, pinkish gold and kind of looks like those like uh, paintbrush strokes if you've ever seen that. And then it like starts turning to purple. And then it gets weird because, you know, our front window's really big and we're like sitting on the couch watching a movie. So Sarah tries to shut the blinds. I'm like, no, don't do it. So people are like watching us as we're watching. The sky actually, like the purple sort of faded into brown, which if you think about it, it's like a weird color for the sky. I mean, it was just like, it was phenomenal, right? 
So then I uh, go to sleep and wake up the next morning and I'm sitting in the coffee shop and I'm watching and I see the first little like glimmers of light pop up and uh, then I'm watching and I'm thinking to myself and, and I don't know why, like, I, and I don't want you to take anything away from this other than maybe I'm a little bit weird. I'm like asking God, like, can I see that pink from yesterday? Not like some sort of weird, you know, just question. And I really didn't like hang a lot of my salvation on this question or anything like that. I was just like, man, it'd be cool if I saw it. And then it like pops up. Who knows if it's the same color? Don't, whatever. That was weird. Sorry. Anyway, uh, it was like an amazing thing. And I realized something really profound uh, that me and everyone else who enjoys the sunrise sunset thing, we're kind of idiots, I think, right? Because at the end of the day, like, nothing is happening. The sun is staying exactly where it is, and the earth is spinning as it has been spinning for however long the earth has been around. Like, uh, nothing is actually going on. We have this experience, because we're stuck on one place on this ball that's spinning around. I don't want to explain science again to you. We've already done the hormones thing, so we'll just stick with that. But we are stuck in this one place spinning around, and yet... I have like a, you know, a rapturous experience watching what I think is the sun sinking below the skyline and the sun rising above the skyline as the sun continues doing what it's always done. As it just hangs out there burning and exploding in space, never moving while we are moving around it. Our experience of night is actually the period of life that we live in, the period of all of life. We are in the in-between phase where Jesus, as the Son, has promised us something that is coming. And that promise is just as guaranteed as the sun will rise the next day. In fact, that promise is actually even more guaranteed than that because our language is faulty. That promise is as guaranteed as the sun will be there when we spin back around to see it the very next day. The truth of the goodness of God is the same that says that the sun is going to be there, that that truth is already solidified. That promise that Jesus has already overcome the world has already happened. And our duty then as Christians, when we're sitting in the dark, when we're sitting in just the middle of the darkest possible night, is to not lose hope that the sun is going to rise again the next morning. That we can take Jesus at his word, that he does know all things. That while we are pregnant with sorrow right now, that the joy of the sun will rise the next morning. That while we may be confused right now and not understand everything, that Jesus is going to bring everything to bear. That he is going to make everything right again. That while we might be needy right now and we might have all of these things that we want and we crave and we hunger for, that the sun is going to rise again tomorrow and actually satisfy all of our needs. And that the victory is already won. What we have here is not a problem with Jesus. It's not a problem with God the Father. It's not like that they like dropped the ball in some way. It is a perception problem on our end to be able to see that this victory is already won. It is a problem that we are just stuck on this side of the sphere, that we are stuck in night to be able to see that the victory has always and will always be there, that Jesus has overcome the world. He has already won. His victory is sure. Would you guys pray with me?
Father God, we ask humbly that you would make us people of your victory. God, that we would not be people who look at our own surroundings and see that we are losing, God, and see that we are in pain, we are in sorrow, we are confused, that we are needy, God, but that we would be people who are people of you, who take peace in you. God, who've listened to your voice over all the other voices that are competing for our attention, your voice that says, I have overcome the world. God, let us be a people that live out of that victory, that live out of that truth, that live out of that power. God, we love you, and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.